Just sounded right to say, everyone have a seat. Totally forgot what was next, my bad. <laughs> if you guys would stay in John chapter 4, we're going to walk through that text. Even as we were worshiping, I was, I, was, I was thinking through, we come here, we spend roughly two and a half hours probably with preparation and coming to be a part of the service and then leaving slowly and possibly eating with someone and like churches work anybody yeah and yet we don't come for our own good we come because our god deserves worship and we get to come together corporately we get to spend time with one another being encouraged by god's word and there's so much i want to share there's so much i want to talk about i'm i'm having a tough time just going i'm going to stick to the text because there's so much I want to say. But the text, the word of God is what sanctifies us. And at the end of the day, I want to look more like Jesus. I don't know about you. And so as we come together, as we get around God's word, I want to encourage us, let's lean into this. Let's lean into what does God say? Why did this conversation between Jesus and the woman at the well take place? How does it speak to us today? I would ask us to come with that perspective as we read today. If we were saved by grace, through faith, in Christ, and we, those who have chosen Jesus Christ, really he chose us, those who are in relationship with him, if we are no longer identified by our sin, but we are made saints in God's eyes, that we are made righteous before God because of the work on the cross and through the resurrection of Jesus, why does God leave us on earth? Didn't we do the very thing we were all created for, which was to come in relationship with him, to know him personally and experientially? Isn't that the point of this life? Yes. But to just pray a prayer, I'm answering my own question, to just pray a prayer or to even repent and turn from your sin is not experiencing God by itself. It is a lifetime of commitment to following failing, and hopefully failing forward by learning from what you've done, and growing more into the likeness of Christ. That is the point. That is why we do what we do. And so that's why he didn't just take us to heaven as soon as we repented. But once you and I have been made right in God's eyes, once we've been drawn by him to come in relationship with him, one of the reasons that he doesn't just take us is that once we became a Christian, we also became an image bearer of Jesus, an ambassador for Christ, a representative of the King that lives and speaks on the Messiah's behalf. But can we be honest? I mean, if we can't be honest in this building, where are we going to be honest? Spiritual conversations are generally pretty hard. They're pretty hard with strangers, but they're also pretty hard with people that we know well. And sometimes it can be really awkward in a conversation if we do start to have a spiritual conversation, but we don't know how to reply. We don't know how to point people to Jesus. And if that is the case, while we're sharing with someone, we may end up just refraining from the very thing God created us to do and left us here for. Because he wants to use us. He wants to grow us. And stepping out in faith, being his church, being his plan A. There was no plan B, guys. 
being the rescue team in which Jesus sent to seek and save what was lost through the message of the gospel is why we're here. And don't take my word for it. Let's look at what Jesus' example was. Today, we're going to dive deeper into a conversation that Jesus had with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, a woman who had a checkered past and was of a nationality that Jews did not associate with. So real quick, what's the best Star Wars movie? I know this has nothing to do with what I'm talking about, but I just want to hear back. Empire Strikes Back, so they're right, everyone else is wrong. Perfect. So Empire Strikes Back. And as we're walking through, now I lost half of you. Star Wars is a movie, never mind. As we're walking through this text, in the past, I've preached this text where Jesus and the Samaritan woman have a conversation, and I've gone through all of it. It was like a Lord of the Rings one movie. It was super long. But we get to walk through this discussion in three parts, and so this is the Empire that Strikes Back version of this text. For some of you, that's lost on you, that's okay. Last week, we uncovered loving God means loving your neighbor. And your neighbor isn't just someone who's just like you, it's someone who isn't just like you as well. So let's pick up in verse 7 as we go through some context of what we're about to study. John chapter 4, starting in verse 7, here's what it says. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. Verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Let's set the stage. Jesus comes to this place where there is a well to draw water, but he does it in the middle of the day, and he's a Jew. Not only is he a Jew, he's a rabbi, he's a teacher. People are following him, and he chooses because he was compelled. See what I did there? He was compelled to go to this well in Samaria where Jews usually did not associate with Samaritans, but usually this was woman's work. Don't get mad at me. That's what the text says. And the women, women in households of families would go and draw water for their family, usually at dusk, or dawn. Jesus decides to go at 12 o'clock in the afternoon, or right as, you know, lunchtime. Sun's right overhead. It's very hot. And as he goes there, there's no one else there except for the Samaritan woman who we're going to see has a checkered past, has done some things that she has a reputation for, and people don't really associate themselves with her, not just Jews, but even Samaritans. So we see this cultural blockade in this discussion. We see this woman surprised by this Jewish man engaging her. It surprises her, but she also may be left wondering what he's talking about. Coming to this well without even a bucket to actually accumulate water. Kind of seemed like he wasn't prepared, huh? So why make this trek, Jesus? Why come all this way? Why send your disciples into Samaria to go get food and come to Jacob's well in the middle of the day with the sun overhead beating down on your weary body? I'll tell you why. So he can engage this woman, this broken woman, this sinful woman. Verse 11, sir, out of respect, she says, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? And as we talked about very quickly last week, she's still thinking physically. 
asking about the fact he has no pail to accumulate water. But don't we do this with Jesus when he speaks to us? Do we think there is no way that something can take place physically and we think God can't do it when he's actually speaking to us spiritually and we've missed it? Also, as we read this text, as you look at the language, this woman might actually be mocking Jesus. See, Jews despised Samaritans, but Samaritans held Jews in contempt because they were arrogant in, in the Samaritans' eyes and did not get it. So, Jesus, you didn't bring a pail to get this water, so you won't even be able to draw the living water that you're talking about. And Jesus' response, very subtly, if you knew who you were talking to, you'd know that this living water is not found in a place, but it's found in a person, and his name's Jesus. Verse 12, the Samaritan woman's response, Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? The Samaritan woman's question about our father Jacob was an example of her belief that the Samaritans were the rightful descendants of Jacob and the true Israelites. She seemed to use aggressive language towards Jesus and what she may have seen as arrogance on Jesus and even his bloodline's behalf. Do you have, she's asking, do you know of water that is better than the water that our father Jacob and his descendants drank from? Do you think you're more important than him? The nerve of Jesus, I bet you she thought. But I wonder if that's how people view Christians' faith today. People will say, well, I have a faith. I have a religion. I'm a Catholic. I'm a Jew, or my favorite, I'm an atheist. And if you don't think atheism is a faith, you don't understand atheism. It takes a lot more faith to believe all of this happened by accident than it does to believe that God created it. To believe that there is no God requires a ton of faith and probably some wishful thinking and a lot of closed-mindedness, and I get to speak this from firsthand account because I was. But for a person of another faith, Christians can be looked at as very arrogant because we believe our faith is the only way. So how dare us try to proselytize others and convert them to our religion? How dare you, Christians, is possibly how people in other faiths see us. But let me tell you about a lie from the pit of hell. It's this, that if someone claims that they have another faith, that they don't need to hear the truth from you. That's a lie. Please don't assume that because people have a faith that isn't in Christ, or even if it's in a little bit of Christ, that it's okay, because that's evangelistic agnosticism, where you just go, oh, no, they're good. I don't want to bring it up. Because people do deserve to hear the truth, and if you know the truth, how dare you keep it to yourself? But here's the thing. I don't want anyone to become part of my religion. I want them to enter into relationship with my Jesus. Do you see the difference? So often, we try to get people to just come to the church. If you got dragged here, raise your hand. No, I'm just kidding. So often, we think that the whole goal is to just get people into the building. But let me tell you once again, it's not about the steeple. It's about the people. Asgard's not a place, it's a people. Spoiler alert. 
And if he is who he says that he is, if Jesus is the way, the truth, the life, if he is living water, if he is eternal life, if he has cemented these statements by living the life you couldn't, dying the death you and I deserve to die, and physically rising from the dead, how in heaven would you not want others to know this about our Savior? So Jesus presses in. I love my Jesus. He presses in. He doesn't allow her mockery or even her misunderstanding of who he is to derail his pursuit for her. Verse 13, Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Your physical well-being will always require maintenance. You guys know what I'm talking about? Anyone maintain your physical well-being this week? You sleep? You eat? You not eat really, really bad stuff? And these are some of the ways that we maintain, but the living water that Jesus offers, it doesn't just maintain you. It cleanses you. It justifies you you. It makes you right and holy before a perfect God. Why? Because Jesus did for you what you couldn't do for yourself. It not only justifies you, this living water, the truth of God sanctifies you. It spiritually grows you. It starts to transform you. It changes you. Why? Because my God's well is deep. His love is wide, and his offer for forgiveness is eternal. An eternal life, we've talked about this many times before, is simply knowing God. But just don't take my word for it. Let's look at what Jesus actually says. John 17, 3. We'll get to this probably in 2030. John 17, 3. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I teach this text a lot. Mike's taught this text. We talk about this simplistic verse a lot. You know why? Because if Christians understood this simplistic verse, we'd stop making Christianity about what it's not. It's not about you. It's not about what you can bring to the table. Eternal life is about knowing Jesus, not completing a spiritual do-good list. Because knowing God isn't about you at all. It's about knowing God. Through a loving and experiential relationship with King Jesus King, who God the Father has sent to be our propitiation. Here's some application. Use that word this week. Good luck. He is our propitiation. He is our redemption. Anyone grow up Catholic? It's okay. You can, okay. Here's the thing. Jesus is our penance. Because we can't do enough, but he already did for us what we needed. And the payment for our sin was given by Jesus and his life. He is the satisfaction of God's wrath. You know why we make much of Jesus? Because Jesus made much of the Father every moment of his life. And it's all about Jesus. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's all about Jesus. So we have these two different conversations happening. We have the woman thinking physically. We have Jesus speaking spiritually and eternally. Have you ever been in text message and having two conversations at the same time and you start answering the wrong thing to the wrong person? That can get awkward. 
And we have these two conversations continuing here, but Jesus' words also show his patience and his love for this woman as he is still engaging her with truth and direction towards how it's possible to find true hope, love, and salvation in Christ Jesus. This past week, I was speaking at Santa Clara University. And we, by God's grace, at Church of the Valley, I explained this to first service too, we, by God's grace, not only have a college director in Abbey, but we have ministries that happen at San Jose State known as Pulse, where we meet on campus and we want to engage the community at San Jose State. And many of those Pulse students attend here. And then we have a college group, which I'm not going to reveal the name because it's not my job to, but uh, we have a college group that meets here and is going to meet over the summer and things like that. But we also, I, I forgot, Spencer, what is it? Like we, we're a parent church? What, what's the term? Partner. Partner sounds good. So we're a partner church with CORE at Santa Clara University, and there are multiple gospel preaching churches that partner with CORE. And CORE is a Protestant club, means they believe in Jesus, they preach Jesus, and they have different speakers and worship leaders, and, and people come and teach. And this past Tuesday, I'm teaching, and in a few weeks, Christine's going to be teaching from our body, and she's going to be teaching about the Word of God as well. And, and so this past Tuesday, I got to teach, and I got to teach on sanctification. got to preach on the Word of God and how it changes you as you obey it, and as we don't want to just be doers of the Word, but, or, yeah, we do. Uh, we don't want to just be hearers of the Word, but doers, just making sure you're paying attention. And at the end of my message, Brooke, wave your hand, Brooke, where are you? Right there. Brooke, who's overseeing the worship aspect of Tuesday Night Live, is that what it's called? Am I just making up stuff? Okay, I'm just making up stuff. Anyway, at CORE, it doesn't matter. So at CORE, at the end of, the, of my teaching, Brooke grabs everyone and says, hey, we're going to worship outside. And so we walk outside, and we go kind of in the, kind of the central middle part of the school, roughly, not exactly, don't, don't critique me on that, but we walk outside and we sit down, and in front of me, where I'm looking up, I see students worshiping God as we sing songs to his name. I see dorm rooms that are like 13, probably not 13, they don't do 13, so there's like 14 stories, and students are walking by as we're proclaiming Jesus' name through song. And I watched some of the students. It was fun. They were walking, and they were like, what are those people doing? And then they heard Jesus, and they're like, nah. And they just kept walking. And some actually, like, were listening, and they were engaging, and they were kind of pretending they were on Snapchat, but they were actually listening. And we worshiped God for the next 30 minutes, and it was fantastic. Man, I wish I had taught out there, to be honest. And it created this inquisitiveness towards what was happening. But, you know, at any school, even Santa Clara U, sorry, there were some students that were a little antagonistic. And they started to yell things. But the funny thing about it was they got drowned out by how loud 50 of us were singing. So, ha! And we were singing praises to Jesus, and they were saying, and I was hoping some of those antagonistic people would come in and engage. And it reminded me, me in college, that was me. I was the antagonistic one. But I wouldn't just yell something and keep walking. I'd go in there and be like, all of you are so stupid to worship a God you can't even see. And I was so hoping that someone antagonistic would come and try to have a discussion. But they didn't. But here's the thing. Just because someone is antagonistic doesn't mean they don't need to hear the truth. Someone shared it with me. I praise God for that. And I know they were intimidated. I know they were afraid. And we see that in a very gentle and direct way, Jesus engages this woman who is antagonistic towards him. 
Verse 14, one more time. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring, continuous, of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus contrasts physical water with the eternal living water that is given by God. It springs up. It leads to eternal life, knowing God. But this living water that springs up, it overflows. It is not something that stops because you're not feeling God. Do you hear me? It's not something that just based on your circumstance that you have less of God. God is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And I love this promise because I'm not the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. Because God's transforming me. And if you would obey him and trust him, he will transform you. And God offers this eternal promise of being adopted into the kingdom of God. It is about an abundant life. It is about an overflowing life of eternal life. One that isn't just about quantity. Oh, you get to live a thousand years. That would be terrible, by the way. Because your body's not set up for that. So just think about that for a second. But that you get a quality of life, eternal life, that starts now. Once you trust Jesus. And lasts into eternity. You're no longer in conflict with God if you trust Jesus. You are restored. You are reconciled back to God. Verse 15. The woman responds, Sir, respect. Give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Missed it by that much. She's tired. She's exhausted. She's sick of having to come to this well, especially at 12 o'clock, so she won't run in to all the Gabby women. But her response seems to be what most of us would say if God offers us a relationship with him. See, we don't want to go to H-E double hockey sticks. So eternal life is offered, and wouldn't we kind of say what she said? But see, here's literally what Jesus is saying, in my opinion. Jesus is saying, listen, child, you offended me. You sinned against my dad and myself, but I offer you a way out. It comes from me. It doesn't require you to work your way to me. I have come to you. And this woman says, oh, I want this. But what is Jesus' response to her request? Because doesn't it seem like she's about to accept, and I say this with quotes, accept Jesus? She's going to do him a favor By buying what he's selling. So what does he say? Verse 16. He told her, go and call your husband and come back. Um, Jesus, what are you doing? She's ready to become a Christian. She's ready to sign on the dotted line to give you what you came for. Jesus, you're not good at this evangelism thing, bro. You sure did a lot to go out of your way to engage this woman. And wasn't the point of her, for you coming here, for her to become one of yours? Didn't you want her to accept your offer? Didn't you want her to convert to your religion? Why are you asking her to go get her husband? He may not be interested in the stuff that you're talking to her about. Jesus, you're messing it up. Why, Jesus? Why make this more difficult? Oh, wait, maybe. Oh, I get it. Jesus is smart. Maybe Jesus wants two for one. Go, go get your husband. 
Here's her response. Verse 17, I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. Well, this is awkward. But see, Jesus didn't assume that she had a husband. But stated this because he wanted to expose something that not only was a sin in her life, but was what her reputation was built on. And in fact, she was probably getting her identity from how men treated her. So he exposes it. And here's the thing, guys. We often, this is the biggest struggle I think even those of us who have committed to Jesus Christ have. We get our identity from things that are not Jesus. And there is nothing that can hold our identity outside of what Christ has already accomplished for us. And we often, often buy into extra biblical sayings. We buy into extra biblical methodologies. We even buy into theologies that are not biblical. We say or quote or even pray things like, are you ready? This first one you've heard me say, God will never give you anything you can't handle. Come on, you've said that, you've thought that. The problem with that's the Bible. Because it seems like he constantly gives us things we can't handle. So we will reach out to him. Here's another one. God helps those who help themselves. What's wrong with that one? The gospel. Because the gospel is that you can't do enough to work your way. You can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You need a Lord to do for you what you couldn't do for yourself. Here's one that I've heard before, also not biblical, but we say it. Cleanliness is next to godliness. Now, I am all for people showering. All right, hear me. Please, wash your feet too. But we have to make sure that we understand we cannot quote Benjamin Franklin and claim it was God. But let me give you one that may hurt a little bit because I think for a lot of us we believe this, but I don't see it in Scripture. When we're talking about someone outside of the church, when we're talking about someone who has no relationship with God, and I don't think I specified this enough first service, here's the term that we would say, hate the sin, love the sinner. Sounds pretty good. Some of you were like, dude, don't, don't, don't teach us something other than that. Hate the sin, love the sinner. But the problem is, i got to be honest about what Scripture says. Romans 5, verse 8 says this, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know what it doesn't say? While we were still sinning. It says, while we were still sinners, our identity, Christ died for us. Before you come to Christ, it doesn't differentiate between your sin and you being a sinner. This is going to hurt a little bit, but here's the thing, guys. You don't just lie. You're a liar. You don't just fornicate. You're a fornicator. You don't just hate. You're a hater. And without Christ coming in and being the one who you get your identity from, you will always be those things without Christ. Because if all you try to do is clean yourself up, it will never, ever justify. And here's the reason I bring this up, because of the subtle 
exaltation, of attempting to divorce sin from the sinner, we seem to justify that since our human nature is to transgress against God, even people that don't believe in God go, well, I'm not perfect. We act as if it's okay. We act as if it's not a big deal to sin against God, but the problem with that is God the Father placed his son on a cross because of our sin. He sentenced him to death because you and I cannot and will not do what the Lord says. I'm not just talking about once in a while, but ever, unless the Spirit of God resides in us and leads us. This is why I want to stress again and and again that no one is good, not even one. People by themselves do not have an inherent need to please God. It's actually quite the opposite. Left to our own will and nature, we will constantly choose anything but God. But God intervenes. God gives us his spirit. In fact, Romans chapter 3, verse 10 through 12, here's what Paul says. He says, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. Aren't you glad you brought a friend today? I love that Paul the Apostle not only writes books of the Bible, but he teaches from other books of the Bible. See, Paul quotes the Psalms. He quotes Psalm 5, Psalm 10, Psalm 14, and Psalm 53, and he puts them together to point out that no one seeks after God naturally, but God. Some of the best words in Scripture. But God intervenes, but God gives his spirit, but God draws us to himself, and it is through his kindness that we are led to repentance, to change direction. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. So does your spiritual bankruptcy and your understanding of that, does that lead you to Christ? Or in your pride, do you run away? Because that's a symptom of a heart that is for Christ or against him. Jesus continues in his awkward response. The fact is, you have had five husbands And the man you have now is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Oh, dropping some truth right here, isn't he? And if you think about it, this could be the most intimidating and embarrassing moment humanly in Scripture. The only thing that's missing in this encounter is a crowd of witnesses, right? Everyone would be recording that. And yet Jesus has never met this woman and yet he knows her history. He knows her transgressions, and he doesn't just say, that's okay. He calls them out. Now hear me, because if all you hear me say is that, your application might be, well, I need to find people's faults and call them out. No! That's my, when I yell at Boston, that's the no voice. No! There are some things that can be taken away from the Son of God actually calling out the Samaritan woman's sin, but I don't think it's to try to find the dirt without any relationship and then try to tell them how they're wrong. Let the cults do that. They identify themselves by that. 
but let me show you a few things that we can take from this. Jesus loved her enough to have the awkward conversation. Jesus didn't allow her to, her sin, Jesus didn't allow her sin to be her excuse for not hearing the message. Jesus engaged in a subject that others would just ignore and silently judge behind the scenes. Guilty. As a pastor, I have difficult conversations daily. In fact, in a good week, I have difficult conversations every hour of my job. But as a Christian, for those of you who have repented, those of you who are identified by Christ's work on the cross and through the resurrection, who are a part of the body of Christ, we actually cannot expect the pastor to be the only one who has difficult conversations. Listen, I like preaching to a somewhat full room. Can I just be honest about that? I like it when more people show up. I'm not going to pretend like that's not true. Oh, dang it, 100 people showed up today. No, No, I like it. But if you are hanging on a string so thin that to be a part of this community or to be a part of God's community, that one difficult conversation would break that string, leave now and find a place where you can just hide behind the scenes. If you want to grow into the likeness of Jesus, difficult conversations with difficult people are inevitable. Do you see that? It's not if they'll happen. It's how prepared will you be when they happen. That's good. And if we want to grow into the likeness of Jesus, that means we will deal with difficult people because God uses those situations to grow us into his image. Sometimes, If you're like, oh, I don't have difficult conversations with other people. Turns out you're the difficult one. We're pretty familiar with the fruit of the Spirit. The idea that we want to grow to look more like Jesus. want to grow in love and kindness and goodness and self-control and patience and all of these things. But right before Paul teaches that in Galatians, he teaches this in chapter 5. He says this, the acts of the flesh are obvious. (laughs) I hate that he says that they're obvious, because I think some of us think we're really good at hiding stuff. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft. Okay, I mean, not perfect, but none of these are. Hatred, ah, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition. All right, that's everybody dissension, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Is that sobering at all? Okay, let me point out one thing it doesn't say. What it does not say is, I warn you, as I did before, that those who ever do these ever will not inherit the kingdom of God. He uses this term, live like this. It's the same term of walking in. Walking in these things. If this is what we're known for, this is probably what we're full of. And whatever we're full of when we get bumped, that's what spills out. And if if you exhibit the works of the flesh habitually, 
then you will be confronted. You will be challenged. And unless you are willing to be changed by God and his word, you will be consistently uncomfortable being a part of the body of Christ in the church. Not just here, but anywhere they preach and live the truth of God. Whenever someone says, I found a church, I'm really comfortable there, that actually makes me cringe. Here's how she responds in the last verse we're going to teach from this text today. She says, sir, I can see that you are a prophet. Fair enough. I mean, he just called her out on a bunch of stuff. And it doesn't seem that she gets defensive. But we won't really know until next week or if you just read ahead like anyone can. I can see that you are a prophet. And what we're going to unpack next week that he's so much more than just a prophet. Hallelujah. Jesus did an amazing job of making known that he wasn't just any rabbi, but he was the one that the Jews and the Samaritans had heard about, the Messiah that was to come. And next week, the return of the Jedi. No. The (laughs) next week, this conversation concludes, and we get to see the difference that it made in this woman's life. Worship team, would you come on up? Dr. J. Wilbur Chapman told of a distinguished minister, Dr. Howard from Australia, who preached very strongly on the subject of sin. After the service, one of the church officers came to counsel with him in the study. He said, Dr. Howard, he said, we don't want you to talk as openly as you do about man's guilt and corruption. Because if our boys and girls hear you discussing that subject, they will be more easily Push to become sinners. Call it a mistake. Call it an oops, if you will. But do not speak so plainly about sin. The minister grabbed a small bottle from his bookshelf. And showing it to the visitor, he said, Do you see this label? It says strychnine. And underneath it, in bold red letters, it says poison. Do you know what you're asking me to do, sir? You are suggesting that I change the name on the label. Suppose I do. Suppose over this label I post on it the essence of peppermint. Don't you see what might happen? Someone would use it, not knowing the danger involved, and they would certainly die. So it is, too, with the matter of sin. The milder you make your label, the more dangerous you make your poison. Is there a sin in your life that God may need you to expose because you're getting your identity from it, but you refuse to confess it? See, once we come to Christ, we no longer have to be seen as sinners. We're seen as saints. We're seen as co-heirs with Jesus Christ. But guess what? We're still in these mortal bodies. Paul talks in particular about how he does the things he wish he wouldn't, but he's still tempted. Every week when I teach, I choose on purpose not to give an application. This is what all of you should do, because if you do what I ask you to do, there's no guarantee you're going to grow spiritually. But that's why I ask a particular question. It's in your bulletin. It's on the back as you guys have that to discuss more deeply the sermon with other people or hopefully in your community groups. 
The question is, what is God telling you to do differently? Because if, if you do what God tells you to do differently, here's the crazy thing about that. You'll probably grow. And that's why we're here, to equip you to grow into the likeness of Jesus. And I want it to be between you and God, not between you and me or you and some other person. But let me read to you what James says. James, the half-brother of Jesus, writes a book after his own name. Here's it, James chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. If anyone is among you sick, let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you an application. I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond. This hopefully isn't the only thing that you apply from the text, but I want to encourage you to do something today. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask the McRoberts to stand over here. I'm going to ask, where are the Fredericks? Where are you guys? Right there. I'm going to ask you guys to stand over here. I totally didn't prep the wills, but I'm going to ask Brian and Don. I'm going to ask you guys to kind of stand in the middle right over here, if you don't mind. And we're going to have a time of worship. We're going to have a time of offering. I'm going to pass the bags, and as the bags get passed, if you came prepared to give, you can drop it in there. But if you weren't prepared to give... Just let it pass, and if you still want to give something, you can drop it in the box as you leave, but we're going to pass the bags anyway. And we're going to worship. And after the bags get passed, I would encourage you to stand up. And then if God is doing something in your soul, if you've heard something in this message where you need to repent, you need to change direction, you need to ask for forgiveness from God, why not go talk to a righteous person? Now, here's the thing. They're great, but they're not perfect. They're great. They're not perfect. They're great. They're not perfect. But in God's eyes, they're righteous, not because of what they've done, but because of what Christ has already done for them. And I know this because I see the work of the Spirit in their lives. So I would encourage you that if you need prayer, let's do that during this time of worship. How many songs? Perfect. Three. That's mad time for you to get up and get prayer. But don't miss out on this opportunity. If you need prayer, if you need encouragement, if you're sick and you want someone to pray over you, cover your mouth, but have someone pray over you. And I know that for some of this, this level of intimacy, this is more than we're used to. But we'll never get used to it unless we try it. Here's the thing about sin. Many of us are familiar with vampires. A vampire goes out into the light, they die. I see sin in a very similar sense. Once you confess it and you put it out into the light, it dies. It no longer has the control over you it once did. But you have to be willing to confess it. You have to be willing to have other people hold you accountable. And I know for people like me who are very prideful, that is really difficult. So I'm going to pray for us, then I'm going to pass the bags, and as the bags get passed and you drop your offering, please stand, and then we will worship. And if you are prepared to be prayed over, go be prayed over by these couples. You won't regret it. Father, I thank you for the opportunity we have this morning to engage with you. I thank you for your word and that it is a lamp unto our feet. And I thank you, God, that your application, the things that you would have us do, ultimately are not for a benefit outside of growing more into your likeness. And so, Lord, as we take of this offering, as we praise you in song, as we 
worship you through giving, God, may it all be because our heart's motive is to do what you say, because we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.